Hey everybody, we're so glad to be back for another installment of An Ounce of Prevention with Women in Distress. I'm your host, Emily Janice. Just a quick note about today's episode before we get started. This conversation does include mentions of suicide and suicidality, as well as some other struggles that survivors and folks seeking services or calling domestic violence hotlines may face. We hope that you'll do whatever it is you need to do to take care of yourself and the folks around you, and that, like with all of our podcast episodes, you'll take something valuable from our conversation and utilize what you hear to work towards a violence-free world, both in your life and in your community at large. Also, as we honor Suicide Prevention Month in September with today's conversation, we're looking forward as well to October, which, as you may know, is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. This is one of the busiest times of year in the education and prevention team here at WID and in the DV community in general. So we're going to have a lot of great opportunities to get involved, including on social media with a toolkit we'll be putting out and some great awareness events, all in addition, of course, to the community work that we do all year long. So we hope you'll stay tuned on our website, womenindistress.org, as well as on social media with us. All the links of how to stay in touch with us and follow us are going to be in the show notes. Also in the show notes, as usual, we'll be sure to link to resources in case you or anyone you know needs assistance. We're also going to mention some resources and services throughout the episode. We have a great conversation in store for you today with our statewide hotline training and technical assistance specialist, Andrine Baxter. So thanks for joining us. One of the things I always say is that, you know, me personally, I'm not a DV survivor, right? So I can't relate to them in that way. And even if I was, I still can't relate to them that way because everybody's situation is different. But I do know what it's like to be scared. I do know what it's like to be frustrated and confused and all these other emotions survivors come in with. And so that's how I can relate to them in the, on that level. So I try to, you know, connect with them through the emotions, not necessarily the situation. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for doing this and being on the show today. Hi, thank you for having me. We work together, so this is always fun. I love interviewing people that uh, I work with because it feels really formal, but also not. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm excited to have this conversation with you and for our listeners. So um, Andrine Baxter is on the show today, and she works in the statewide program that Women in Distress is a part of. So Women in Distress participates as um, part of the Florida Domestic Violence Collaborative, which is a collaborative of three domestic violence centers. So WID, CASA in St. Petersburg, and the Spring in Tampa Bay to provide statewide services, um, which includes training and technical assistance, legal assistance, and the hotline, the statewide hotline. So Andrine provides trainings and technical assistance for the statewide hotline and advocates all over the state. Um, She's been in this role for, gosh, is it two years now? Almost? I think just about. Just about. Um, And before that, she worked at Women in Distress as a hotline advocate. So she is quite the hotline expert. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Of course. Um, I think I started a lot of my hotline, quote unquote, experience with the crisis text line. That's when I like first got into violence prevention and mental health and, you know, that kind of format rather than the traditional, you know, base to base type of thing. Um, and from there, I never left it. (laughs) Wow. And what got you to, to start at the crisis text line? Was it just, you were interested in learning more about it and decided to get involved? Yeah, so I was a sophomore um, in college at the time, 
and I was pursuing my psychology degree. And I just, I first actually initially wanted to be a clinical psychologist and um, I wanted to get into the crisis text line. I was referred by my friend um, just to see how I can handle crises. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, it was a pretty quick process. It's a volunteer experience. And, um, the more I got into it, the more I really liked it. And I'm like, okay, psychology is the great to yeah. go to. <laughs> um, so I'm glad I made that call. Um, so the crisis text line primarily focuses on suicide, um, even though they help with all kinds of mental health services, but that was like what we were primarily trained on. And that really kind of grew my love of suicidality, um, advocacy. Um, mm-hmm. and additionally with DB, I kind of went through with other positions that I've been in. Um, but that, that's kind of like how I got my start. Yeah. And it's actually, um, if you didn't know, uh, it's September, so it's suicide prevention. Awareness Month, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what an apt, it's kind of why we invited you, but also a really apt uh, reminder for folks. And that crisis text line, I'll just uh, mention, and we'll mention it again at the end of the call. Um, you can reach out to 988 um, via text or call. Um, and there's also a website that we'll share in the show notes. Um, and we'll talk as well about our the domestic violence hotlines that we have and, and those resources as well. Um, now, we do always list the hotline numbers in our show notes and at the end of the episodes because they're vital resources. Hotlines are key pieces of what domestic violence centers do. And even like you just said, with mental health resources, I think hotlines have become a really key piece of how folks get access to immediate help, but also connected to longer term resources. Um, but it can also be really nerve wracking, um, you know, and, and a vulnerable experience. What can you share from, from the training you've been in and also the trainings you now provide and your experience on these lines? Um, what can you share about what someone can expect when they call or reach out to a hotline? Well, depending on the service, there's lots that survivors and other texters or callers can um, come into and can expect on the hotline. Um, however, there are some things that survivors can definitely expect on the hotline and that's support, validation, empathy, and safety planning. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that we always put through on every single one of our calls, um, our texts for those who have text lines and our chat lines. Um, so typically the flow of our hotline, um, goes by asking for the caller's initial safety. So we typically do that by asking, are you in a safe place to talk right now? Um, we then listen to the survivor's story. And from there, our hotline advocates will listen to the survivors and support them throughout the survivor's, um, story and their call will pick up on any risk factors, any lethality factors, anything that the survivor is mentioning. Um, and we'll ask about that. We'll then collaborate um, with the survivor on our safety planning and what brings them to call, like what goals they're looking for. Um, and we'll make any referrals as necessary. I will mention like on the hotline, we do primarily focus on um, immediate safety planning. So what that means is that whatever the survivor needs right now to feel safe, that's what we're going to focus on. So if the survivor has multiple needs, right, we're going to focus on that one thing for this call and maybe we'll refer them to um, outreach or another advocate for more of that longer term safety planning so they can get those other services as well. We're both in, in this field and we're a little more familiar with with fielding calls and also just like what survivors 
needs often are. Um, but for the folks that are listening that may not know, what are some of the needs that folks may express and what out of those needs might be the more immediate ones that, that a hotline call would focus on? Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is shelter. Um, We have survivors who um, need shelter to escape their situation um, for them and also possibly for their kids if they have any. Um, They also may be experiencing homelessness due to domestic violence. Um, So that means if there's any DV in the past, but because of that DV, they lost their home or their, their lease or whatever the situation might be. They'll ask for shelter or if that agency has transitional housing that has more longer term um, needs, we'll refer them there as well. So primarily shelters will last um, six. I think I've heard of up to 12 weeks before it may depend on your yeah. state. Mm-hmm. Um, but em- emergency shelter really is just more short term. Yeah. If the survivor needs longer term care, then we if the agency has it, they'll refer them to their transitional housing, which can be up to a year, maybe two years, again, depending where you are, um, and we'll refer them to those services or community services. I think... So, oh, so I was going to say, it sounds like advocates really need to know a lot about the services of the agency, but also kind of have a finger on the pulse of what else is available, um, especially if folks are calling with, with so many different you know aspects of what they might need. Yeah, so... Something that I, I train on with our, with our advocates is that you're never just knowing just DV stuff, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because our survivors are never just going through just domestic violence. There's just so many other things that are going on from, um, could be substance use, mental health, um, legal things, all these other intricacies that just like comes into their situation. So we're not just, informed on DV advocacy, but we have these other buckets of knowledge of other services that we can refer them to, right? We know our role as DV advocates, but we still want to have at least a general base knowledge of those other services that survivors come to us, you know, commonly about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And when you're fielding those calls, do you have access to like a database or do you do research? Do you train advocates to do research when they're on those calls? Yes. So um, how I train our resource guide is specifically at WID, we have our own resource guide. It's mm-hmm. like a big master Excel sheet. Some survivors, sorry, some cells, some um, agencies use like an actual binder of all these, mm-hmm. you know, resources. Um, and so we collect community partners. So that can range from, you know, child abuse services mm-hmm. that can range from legal resources, other homeless shelters, um, medical resources, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're also just not looking at what's in our community. We're also looking at our surrounding counties and communities as well. Because, for example, we're in Broward, but we get people from Miami and we get people from Palm Beach all the time. So we have to know what's in their counties as well. In addition to that, we also um, have knowledge on what the state resources are. So one of them obviously being our Florida Domestic Violence Hotline um, and other, you know, statewide legal or child abuse or substance use, whatever it may be. And we also know our national resources as well for those callers who call out of state. 
much. Yeah, that's that's a lost juggle, but also I think when you have access to the resource and you, you get that time and that training. And you do provide a lot of training. That's a big piece of, of your role now is not just, um, you know, I know you still fill in on hotline shifts and obviously you're speaking with hotline advocates and, um, you know, gaining their experience or, you know, hearing their experience. Um, but your primary role now is providing training and support for those advocates and for community members around the state and even at nationwide conferences like one you recently presented at. Um, so when you're out talking with those folks and doing that training, um, what do you think are some key skills that hotline advocates can and should practice to support callers? I'd say the key thing is empathy. Yeah, we can we can do a whole separate podcast on empathy. <laughs> um, so empathy is is it's extraordinary, right? And it's how we feel with our survivors because one of the things I always say is that you know me personally I'm not a DV survivor right so I can't relate to them in that way and even if I was I still can't relate to them that way because everybody's situation is different but I do know what it's like to be scared I do know what it's like to be frustrated and confused and all these other emotions survivors come in with and so that's how I can relate to them in the, on that level so I try to you know connect with them through the emotions not necessarily the situation um and that's something that we always try to teach with um our advocates and you know I can always you know say this is what it looks like but it always just comes with practice and that's what a lot of the skills you know advocates have is that it just comes with practice um with the additional, you know, training and stuff on just like how it looks like. Um, in addition to that, I always teach on active listening, which mm-hmm. is like the core thing that we do. Um, and typically active listening will involve validation, summarizing, paraphrasing, just being present with the, with the caller. Um, and just trying to understand their story as best as we can and just being that, that listening ear for them, especially when they may be in a place where nobody's listening to them, whether it be the police, their friends or their family. Um, and just us saying like, Hey, we believe you mm-hmm. and we're going to support you as best as we can. It really means a lot to them. Yeah. I can imagine that's really powerful. And I think, you know, I, I know this comes up sometimes in your trainings and I think about it often with hotline of, you know, we do trainings on active listening generally. We also talk about body language, but of course you're missing that when it's a phone call or you're even missing tone of voice if it's a text or a chat. So what are ways that you help the survivor know that you're listening, create a space on the call where that's really apparent when you don't have the tools like body language or facial expression to do that? So the main difference is that when we're on the hotline, we lose the power of the base in the body, like you said which can tell a lot about how the survivor is feeling and where their comfortability level is at. Um, so maybe when you're in person, you may want to give the survivor a hug or some side of um, supportive touch, you know, if they're comfortable with that. When a survivor especially is crying, right? Um, but on the hotline, we can't do that. So we often use de-escalation skills mm-hmm. and we use paraverbal communication Um which for those who don't know, it focuses more on communication through our tone um, and through our words um, to emphasize that supportive communication. 
um, I will say over text and chat, we lose less of that. Mm-hmm. So not only do we lose the face and the body, but we now lose the voice and the right. tone of the survivor. Um, so that's where clarifications and check-ins come in like really handy and is super important um, over that kind of platform. And so when we're speaking like within a clear language, we're not using any emojis or speaking um, like text language. Yeah. <laughs> um, like how we all did in the early 2000s. Oh my gosh, what a throwback. <laughs> I am. LOL. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> um, we can all cringe at that. But um, yeah, we're not losing that, that kind of language. Um, but... We're also using like more checking language. So like just Mm -hmm. to make sure we're saying things like, you know, I'm I'm hearing that you're feeling frustrated. Is that correct? It sounds like you're feeling angry about this, you know, that sort of thing, just to make sure we're on the same level with them. Right. Yeah. And that must be really good for them, too, because even if you are, it's kind of for them like, oh, this person really is getting it, even Mm -hmm. if it's right. You know, and then it also gives them a chance to correct it. Right. Um, And one thing you said was really interesting, too, of and I didn't think about it this way even before our conversation, it's not just that we lose the ability to share, you know, our tone of voice and whatever, especially when we start chats or, or texts, but we also lose those clues from the survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially dealing with critical information, I imagine that's, that's, pr- that's pretty difficult to navigate to really make sure and like try to gauge where the survivor's at mm-hmm. um, when you just have the characters on the page. Right. Something like a hotline reach out. So what else... Um, Kind of with that in mind, but also just what you were speaking about earlier, too. What are some of those other ways with active listening and with other skills that hotline advocates can practice to really understand where the survivor is in this first call? I would say another thing is, again, I'll mention like our de-escalation skills, because because we're on a crisis line, we're going to have survivors who are, you know, crying heavily, um, really sad about their situation. Other times we have survivors who are really angry. Um, and sometimes that portrays over text, sometimes it doesn't. And that's why we have to, you know, make sure. And so in those cases, we use a lot of like hoping strategies, kind of like self-soothing behaviors first before we dive into whatever the situation, um, whatever the situation is first. So we try to, you know, get them back to a place where they can, you know, speak to us mm-hmm. and, and really be with us. And then we can get into like, you know, risk assessment, safety plan and all that sort of things. Right. Yeah. I imagine that making them feel heard. And again, cause this is such a vulnerable step for folks building that rapport with them is so key before getting into, you know, the assessments and things. And when you, when you say the word assessment, I think a lot of us think like, checklist here's a paper you a form you fill out right so what do checklists feel like on the hotline when you're doing or what do um what do assessments feel like on the hotline when you're doing something like a something like a safety assessment or a risk assessment yeah um before before i go into that i think what you just said was really important which is building report because if we don't do that first then we can't do our risk assessments and our safety planning Um, and it's something I stole from like, I'm in the counseling field. Um, and it's something I definitely stole from that. Where it's like, <laughs> if you don't take the time to get to know them and be with them and be present with them, nothing else is going to work. No interventions, even though we're not doing interventions on the hotline, but no other key steps is going to work if they don't have that connection with you. 
And so when we're doing risk assessments, yes, it's not going to be like a checklist, like you're at the doctor's and we're gaining like your weight and your height and things like that. Um, it's always going to be more of a conversational thing. Um, yes, a lot of advocates use the risk assessments um, provided by Jacqueline Campbell. That's usually the main guide that we go by because it adds a lot of those lethality factors. Um, we get a lot of those questions asked, answered just by the survivor telling us when they're first telling, you know, the story. And so sometimes there's no need to go more further into it. Sometimes there is. So it's just like, just to clarify, I want to ask you a couple more questions just so I really understand what's happening. Right. And just to make sure there's no other lethality factors. Um, some, of, some of the more higher risk may be about, you know, strangulation, sexual assault, um, child abuse, just to make sure the kids are safe as well. Um, so those extra questions may need to be asked depending on the situation. But um, like I said, it's always going to be more of a conversational format. People are not just like calling us to get interrogated, right? Um, they're just looking for a conversation and we'll use that more as a guide to like help us just to make sure we're understanding. Yeah, it really sounds like advocates do have to be especially present to be picking up on those pieces of someone's story and thinking about the risk assessment, thinking about safety strategies, and then also building that rapport. That's and and the resources that we talked about earlier. You know, that's mm-hmm. a lot of different hats to kind of float between. But um, you know, in successful calls I've heard, and even in some of your trainings, the way you talk about it, it it, it ends up feeling seamless um, and feeling like a really nice space for the survivor. That's how it should be. That's, that's how we hope. Um, and and like you said, a lot of you know these 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 are these can be crisis calls. Folks can be in a really uh, strong state of emotion, whether like you said, that's anger, frustration, or sadness, or any mix of that. Um, and callers may be experiencing issues too, like you said, like homelessness. They need shelter struggles with substance abuse, even the mental health piece that you mentioned. Um, and as I said earlier, it is September is Suicide Awareness and Prevention Month. So I, I do want to kind of talk a little bit more about that because I think it's important for our listeners to know how advocates might support callers experiencing suicidal thoughts or intense distress and how community members can promote safety for loved ones who may be going through this experience. Yeah, and I love talking about suicide awareness because I think it's just so important. Yeah. And so the first thing advocates should do if they're not doing it already is to first get trained, right? Um, because taking those sort of calls without the proper background information, that leads into a whole other thing that's just not trauma-informed. Um, and that can be detrimental for the survivor. Mm-hmm. So I always recommend taking a mental health first aid course. You can always just Google it and it should be the first link. Um, I highly recommend taking that because, yes, it'll talk about suicidality, but also talk about like how that intersects with other mental health issues. Without that proper training, right, advocates may go into the conversation believing like a lot of the myths surrounding suicidality. Um, like, for example, the advocate may not assess suicide, even though the survivor is talking about hopelessness and helplessness and all these things, um, because they believe talking about it will further it further those type like of thoughts. the idea in their head yeah. sort of thing yeah. yeah which is a myth by the way um it's oh it's always important to assess for suicidality um if there's a, if the advocate feels like that's now a pressing concern about you know where they're at so real quick before you move on i want to stop 
there and, and highlight something that you said just now, which is, I think, really important for folks. I think this is common or maybe something that a lot of folks don't know, whether they're in social services or just they're listening to this as community members, um, that it's a myth that if you mention suicide to someone that you're worried who may be having suicidal thoughts, you're putting the idea in their head somehow. Um, you know, whereas you just said that that's a myth. Can you talk a little bit more about why that's a myth? Yeah, I think a lot of it can come from, you know, fear of the unknown. Um, so what if I do ask this question and they do it the next day? Or it can be like, what if I ask this question and they say, yes, I am thinking of suicide. What do I do next? Yeah. Right. And that's why it's so important for not just, you know, us as advocates to be well trained on that. Um, but for even our community partners and just for people who, you know, something like that's happened in the past or they just want to learn more about suicidality, mm-hmm. um, should get that kind of training. And I'm sure there's free trainings on YouTube or something that talks about it and can help us just normalize those kind of feelings and get mm-hmm. them to the proper um, resources. And one thing um, I'll say is that you know, it's very, it's very scary to be in a situation like that. And so when we are exposed to that and when we are doing our trainings, one thing I always recommend is start practicing asking that question. Hmm. Are you thinking of suicide? Say it out loud. Say, say, like, see how it feels to you um, and get used to that kind of language. Hmm. Because should it happen in the future, you now feel a little bit more comfortable asking that you could be saving someone's life by asking that kind of question. Yeah, no, I love that. That's so important. Um, and what a good tool to, like you said, practice that. I think there's so much stigma and, and like you said, even fear around suicide. Um, and it can be really scary. So I think getting comfortable asking, getting comfortable sharing is, is so important. Um, so you were also talking about, the, the, you know, there's those more formal trainings like the mental health first aid trainings. Um, what else, uh, you know, what other tools do advocates use or um, kind of use to assist callers who may be feeling this way or be going through some pretty severe or complex uh, mental health crises while on the call? Yeah. So um, should we ever get a survivor experiencing suicidal ideation? We will always assess that. Um see how they're, you know, is there a plan? Is there a timeline? That sort of thing. Um, and we'll assess if, you know, emergency resources needs to be um, called. And we'll talk about that process with them. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing we may do is like referring them to 988, which is the new number for the suicide um, hotline for those who, you know, need support. That's 24-7 hotline. Um, and so we may do like a warm transfer to like someone who is more experienced in that. Um, because like I said, even though we we are, you know, DV advocates, we should have this knowledge. At the end of the day, we're not suicide advocates. Right. Um, and so we may not be the best person to truly support somebody in, in that call. So at least we will then get them to someone who are experts and who can provide that kind of um, service for them. I'm sure there's that fear and even just reaching out to us or a DV hotline and not knowing what to expect or you know, if we are going to have to call someone, you know, so, so making it that warm handoff and explaining the process and, um, you know, I, I think it's a really great way to handle a really tough situation. And that's the important part, explaining the process to them. Mm-hmm. Like it shouldn't be like, oh, you're, you're talking about killing yourself. 
transfer to 980 and that's it, right? Yeah. Um, That's not the way to do it. We'll always like talk about it. And the main reason why we do that is because our number one priority is safety, Mm -hmm. always on the hotline or the chat line or the sex line. And so if we feel like you're not, even if it's like safety from yourself, Mm -hmm. even if you're not in that space, we want to get you there, right? Because yeah. that's our number one concern. And, and if 988 or whatever emergency resource can help with that, mm-hmm. that's the um, plan that we're, that we're going to do if the survivor is okay with it. So what is one thing that you wish the community knew about supporting a friend or family member who may be experiencing abuse? Empowerment. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> what a um, weird answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... You know, it's a reaction to separate the survivor from the perpetrator and get them into services, right? That's as a family member, as a community partner, or or as a friend, that's like our immediate reaction. But we want to make sure that the survivor is ready for that. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that a lot of people don't know. Um, So we don't want to force them into anything that they don't want to do. Um, because we don't want to add more trauma to yeah. what the survivor is experiencing. And when the survivor is forced into services, um, they may be a lot more resistant or hesitant around the services. So it may sure. not, it may not be beneficial to them at that time. So although it's hard, um, we really want to start where the survivor is, hmm. right? So if the survivor is not ready to leave the relationship, then the best thing for family and friends to do is just to let them know that they're there to support them. Um, and they will be there when they're ready. Another thing is to educate yourself. Um, and I say that because, you know, reading articles, watching videos, whatever it may be, um, the more that you're educated, the more you'll be able to help your loved ones. Um, and that really makes a difference when you know why it's harder for people to leave the relationship or why it takes seven times on average to leave a relationship um, or like what it looks like in different communities, like in black communities or queer communities or whatever else it may be. When you have that contextual knowledge, it makes it a lot better for you to help and support your loved ones. Yeah, no, that's huge. And all of that is so accessible to do. I think we've talked about this on even previous episodes, but, um, you know, it, it can feel, if you're not in this field and you don't have experience, it can feel really complicated to, to try to learn or like, and even like we were talking about with suicide, a really scary issue, but so much of, there's so much information out there now and, and so much, you know, even just a little bit of education and, and, and time you can spend with that info and even just listening to this, right. It's, it's just showing up and, and being part of that understanding so support system for the survivor um you know even when they call i know in our training sometimes we talk even with you know professional providers or community partners um you know a survivor may be hesitant to call the hotline even if they're really warm and they're in there doing the supportive kind of warm referral to our hotline you know that can still be a really scary experience um so we even say you know you can support the survivor in a lot of different ways it can be like what you said of just well i'm here when you're ready can be, you know, maybe I'm in the room while you call, maybe I'm not in the room while you call. Um, and I think family and friends could probably use those same skills of, you know, do you want me to dial the phone? Do you want me to sit with you while you call? Do you want me to call first and put it on speaker so you can just like 
hear uh, the, the human that's going to answer the phone on the other end, you know? Um, so there's so much that folks can do. And I think the tips that you shared were really, really great. Yeah. And I, I like that you mentioned that with family and friends being part of that process, because, mm-hmm. you know, survivors are not the only people who call us. A lot of the times it's friends, mm-hmm. it's family members, you know, other times it's professionals like doctors, lawyers, police, that sort of thing. And so, you know, if you have a friend with you or a family member with you who's like just being part of that conversation, um, just let us know if, if you're comfortable mm-hmm. with that. So like I said, the first thing we're asking is, you know, are you in a safe place? And part of the, asking that question is, is the abuser around you? So if we hear somebody else, then that may alert us. And so if you're comfortable saying, I have my friend with me and I'm like, you know, okay, so that's fine. And we can go over that process and your friend can be a part of that conversation as well. So when people are entering our services, we just want to make sure that it's your choice, right? It's not your friend's choice. It's not your mom's choice or whoever else, you know, you are in the position where you're ready for some support and for some help. Yeah. It goes right back to empowerment, like you said earlier. Um, and speaking of that too, just to clarify for the audience. Um, so if somebody's listening to this, who's maybe concerned about someone in their life who may be going through DV or, you know, or they're listening to this and they sort of want to talk to an advocate about a specific situation and see ways that they can support this person. They, they can also call uh, our hotline or the statewide hotline and get those resources. So you don't have to be a survivor just to call. Yes, correct. So um, our hotline isn't just for crises, right? You can call us if you're just looking for more information about DB. So it can be like, hey, my friend is going through X, Y, and Z. Um, You know, how does this sound like to you? Like, is this unhealthy? Is this abusive? And we can get you know, we can get you some information about that. Um, and then we'll also, we'll always like refer our number to, you know, the friend that you're speaking about so they can reach out if they want services or any, any assistance. That's great to know. So folks out there, if you're listening to this because you're trying to learn how to support someone else, or, you know, all of this is kind of making you think of somebody in your life, or you just want to know more, you can also utilize our hotline and other domestic violence resources. And so we've been talking about to continue education, educating yourself and looking up those resources, um, which speaking of how can listeners listen, uh, how can listeners learn more about this topic? I highly recommend loveisrespect.org. Oh, I love loveisrespect.org. That's I'm my so happy favorite. That. Yeah, it's great. We love loveisrespect.org. That's my favorite because it talks about so many different kinds of abuse and it's all in such a digestible way. So mm. that site is primarily for like teens and young adults, but they really like, you know, talk you through it and it's super easy to understand. That's why I love it. Um, another resource is the hotline.org. So that's provided by the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Um, and so they'll also have those kind of resources. Um, but what I especially like about their website is they have a safety planning portal, um, which I recommend doing with the person that is going through DB. So they'll talk you through safety planning and oh, wow. what resources look like for them. And that can mean, you know, your own personal resources, the community, state, whatever it may be. Um, and it will, it's a process that I always say to friends and family, like that's something you can do together. So you're mm-hmm. learning, the, the other person is learning and you're going through this together. Um, so that's a really good one that I like to share. 
That's excellent. I didn't know about that safety planning tool. That's really good to know. Oh my gosh. We're all learning here. Um, And I will definitely, for those of you listening, uh, we will put those resources in the show notes along with um, the hotline number. So, and and Andrea, if you could actually uh, share those hotline numbers for us, both for the local women in distress, for any listeners that might be in Broward County, for the statewide Florida line, um, for anyone throughout the state of Florida, and then the national domestic violence hotline. And again, these will all be at the end of the show and in the show notes. Sure. So for women in distress, that will be 954-761-1133. For the Florida Domestic Violence Hotline, um, that will be 800-500-1119. If you do need legal resources, we also have a statewide a DV legal hotline. Um, and that will be that same number, extension two. So, so the statewide number and extension yeah. two. Okay. Yeah. So they'll, they'll direct you when you call. Um, and then for the national domestic violence hotline, that will be 800-799-7233. And I want to mention too, with all of those numbers, we, um, have resources for folks that may be deaf and hard of hearing. Um, they can use the Florida relay, dial 711 to be able to get the same hotline resources, um, and access to services as well. And of course, we do have, um, those chat and text lines. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. Yeah. And I do just want to mention, um, there are still services out there for survivors who, um, do not know English or have limited mm-hmm. English proficiency. Um, you can still definitely call us, right? Um, and still get services. So how we communicate with survivors that way is that we always get either someone, an advocate who speaks that primary language of the survivor, or we would use a, um, translating service. So we typically use the language side and how that goes is that, um, once we recognize that this person would rather, you know, speak in Spanish, for example, um, we will put them on a brief hold to get an, um, translator on the line. And from there, the translator will kind of serve as that communication piece between us. So the translator is not necessarily a part of our conversation, Mm -hmm. but they're there just to, you know, decrease that that language barrier between us. That's great that that's a resource. Thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. Yeah, of course. I think another thing that I also wanted to mention that I didn't mention too much about is our male survivors. Mm. And I think a lot of um, male survivors, you know, come in thinking that they're not going to get any services or be discriminated against because of their gender. Um, and I think even with our local agency as women in distress, that kind of sometimes right. I put, you know, our male survivors off. Um, and every single one of our agencies in Florida also helps our male survivors as well. Um, and there will always, you know, be services for them. Sometimes we have specialized services for our male survivors. Um, they can still get access to our shelters. They can still um, get our outreach, you know, um, services, call us, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So we also just want to recognize that there are male survivors going through this and we want to support them as much as we do with our female survivors. Absolutely. Again, another reminder for everybody. And thank you so much for bringing that up. That can't say that message enough of abuse is abuse, no matter who you are or, you know, what, what you're 
um, what your background is or, you know, how you want to even get help. Like you were saying with empowerment, right? It's, it's just the fact that you're experiencing it and someone chose to do this to you. Um, and we want to be able to support and validate. And again, the resources there, um, hotlines are a really key way to do this. Um, and, and we appreciate you giving us a window into that world, Andrine, and educating me and, and our listeners about what that process is like. And I'm kind of demystifying the hotline. Yeah, of course. I'm glad to add to the conversation about the hotline, which I know we don't get a lot of information about. Um, but I'm glad I was able to talk about what to expect, right, from our point of view and from our survivor's point of view. Thank you for letting me be here. Absolutely. And, and thank you for the great work that you do and the advocacy that you do. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the Compassionate Education and Prevention Team at Women in Distress, a nonprofit certified domestic violence center in beautiful Broward County, Florida. Special thanks to today's guest, hotline advocate and trainer extraordinaire, Andrine Baxter. I appreciate you spending time with us to share your knowledge, perspective, and ideas, and I'm so glad to work with you. Stay in touch for more episodes and perspectives. Until next time, stay well, stay safe, and remember... Violence is preventable. For everyone out there, please know that there is help if you or someone you know is experiencing dating violence, domestic abuse, or an unhealthy relationship. To talk to someone and get help, contact your local domestic violence hotline. If you're in Broward County, you can contact Women in Distress. Our crisis hotline is 954-761-1133. You can also contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline wherever you are at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233.